You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new centerfire rifle ammunition terminal ascent. Now, the terminal ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The terminal ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet, and it comes in a variety of cartridges, including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06, and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com. And while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. All right, on today's episode, we're going to try something just a little bit different than normal. We're going to try a top 10 type of a list. And the list that I want to go through and give some examples and some more detail in is the biggest public land mistakes, in my opinion, that you can make. A lot of these are, you know, things that I've done over the years and feel that, you know, introspectively looking at what I do, they're things that I can improve on. They're things that I've learned to improve on, and they might be helpful for you guys as listeners to look at these types of things in relation to what you're doing as well and see if there's maybe any opportunities for improvement. As most of you know, I've been using Onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management. In the field or at home, I can browse aerials and topos, map my routes, draw lines and waypoints, color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like, so that I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use, and of course browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx Hunt membership. Alright, so I think mistake number one would be really just trying to spread yourself too thin. At least for me, and I know for a lot of other people, there's a big draw to try and hunt as many different locations as possible, hunt a whole bunch of different states. You know, I've talked about how in previous episodes this year I'm traveling to more states than I have in the past in one particular season, and because of that I'm trying to dial back my expectations or or standards, so to speak. So that kind of goes into why this could be a disadvantage, especially if you're newer to the public land game, because as you learn a particular piece of property, I mean, any given piece of public land is generally speaking going to be larger than what you would typically have if you had a private land property, right? Let's say a, a big private land property might be, you know, 240 acres, 300 acres, 500 acres, you know, some people have access to, but a lot of them are much smaller than that. And typically your public lands, while you have some small ones, there's very commonly, you know, the 500 plus thousand, 3000, 10,000, 30,000 acre public land areas, in some cases even larger. And so just by means of learning one particular area like that, the more you hunt it and the more you scout it, the more you're going to learn and the more quickly you're going to learn. So until you know a particular property, say like the back of your hand, going anywhere else to try and hunt say out of state or just in a different public land area, that's time that you're not going to be able to spend in whatever your primary spot is. And while that may help you in other ways through learning different types of terrain and habitat and things like that, learn how deer move in in different areas, different times of the year, it definitely can have a detriment. When I was first trying to figure out public land and I was hunting quite a bit with my dad, we picked up an area that was about 2000 acres. May have actually been a little bit bigger than that, but really the area 
that we focused on on a certain side of the road was about 2,000 acres, if I if my memory serves me correctly. And year one, we learned quite a bit. Year two, we learned even more. Year three, we learned even more than that. And by the time I got to like year four or five, we had basically spent the entire season hunting in that particular area. We had started to learn more and more about how the deer would use different areas at different times of the year. We got a really good indication of when there was hunting pressure and at those certain times of year where there was higher hunting pressure, how those other hunters would hunt it. We'd figure out if there's people hunting during the week, if there's people hunting on the weekends, if it was the same old guys, if it was a new influx of hunters every weekend, how many vehicles would be hunting during gun seasons and things like that. And we also got a, a pretty good idea of, you know, some of those food sources, where are the big oak trees, where are some of the crop fields, where do the deer like to feed, depending on what's in the areas at various times of the year. And being able to spend an entire season out on that one particular property that I would consider maybe like mid-size, right? A couple thousand acres. It's really helpful and it allows you to still spend enough time out there that there's enough spots that you're not going to blow everything out and you can't hunt. And a lot of places, 2,000 acres for one or two people, there's generally going to be enough spots where you're not at a huge risk of, you know, hunting the entire thing and running out of spots. Uh, especially if you're in an area that has a lot of bedding type cover, you know, either like a marshy type area uh, or some of those areas where you get a lot of big hills. I can see how maybe there's some areas where if there's a lot of, you know, openings or things like that, or just large general areas where there's not a lot of deer activity, then maybe your 2000 acres doesn't hunt very big, but there's a lot of cases where I think it does. And definitely having that experience really expedited a learning curve. Now you take a look at say what I've been doing the last couple of years where I'm hunting more different areas take any particular area like this one in Wisconsin, again, several thousand acres. And I've been learning more and more year after year, but the learning curve isn't quite as fast as it could be because I'm still splitting time between hunting there and hunting in Minnesota and hunting in, uh, well, I guess the North Dakota stuff doesn't make as big of a difference because it's before the Wisconsin season would open, but that's also time that I could be out there, you know, spot checking for acorns before the season. It's it's time that I could be spending glassing or, you know, doing whatever, getting some kind of intel. And then you look at like the rut trips. Well, if I'm going out of state for, you know, basically a two week span, give or take, that's an entire, you know, really good time of the year where I'm not getting any intel apart from what my trail cameras are gathering. So it's just really going to cut down on the length of time that it's going to take me to learn that area. Now, the benefit apart from just having multiple tags is that getting exposure and experience to these various public lands in different states, I'll be exposed to more things than if I had just learned that one property, right? If I learned that one property or in the case of like that marsh I was talking about where we grew up hunting, you'll learn that over like 10 years, you can really figure it out, but you're probably really good at just that, that particular land. And maybe there's some things that you can, you know, kind of glean and apply to other types of areas. But if we learn that one marsh very well, then let's say the government decides to sell, right? And we have to go to a new uh, public land area, let's say it's hill country or it's river bottom or some totally different type of habitat. Then of course it'd be like starting at square one. Whereas getting a little bit of that exposure from various other states, even though it's going to make your learning curve a little bit longer, there's still some benefit to that too. So depending on how you look at it, I think spreading yourself too thin is kind of a line that you have to draw. You have to, you have to be able to tell yourself and be honest with yourself and say, 
this much is too much, right? Maybe I can handle one out of state trip or, or two or whatever the case is. But if I really want to focus and learn this particular area out, or if I want to target an older, you know, age class of deer that I have in the past, then I'm not going to be able to do more than this. And you got to figure out what that is. And definitely going above that may end up doing more harm than good. Number two, in terms of some of these uh, potential biggest mistakes, I think, is not understanding the local rules of the property. I think for the most part, people are pretty good about picking up their state wildlife agency's rules and regulations for a given hunting year. Um, you know, a lot of people maybe just go off memory, but hopefully everybody's going ahead and at least reading that book, you know, the first couple pages where they go over the updates and seeing what's new, what's changed. But that said, especially on public land, there's a lot of different types of public land. And I find that so many of them have little tiny changes here and there about what is allowed and what's not allowed. For instance, you know, Minnesota has a wide range where on certain areas you can do pretty much whatever you want. You can drive ATVs, trail cameras, you can, you know, permanent stands, no issue. And then there's other areas where you can't even bring a pruning saw in. You can't hang trail cameras overnight. You can't do pretty much anything. Uh, even like boundary waters, for example, no wheeled transportation. So you can't bring like a, a wheeled cart to help portage a canoe. So there's little things like that, that if you don't dive into the very specific regs of whatever type of public land you're hunting, and sometimes even the specific area, maybe wildlife management areas fall under a certain classification, but then even beyond that, wildlife management area A versus B might have slightly different rules, just depending on what they're approved for, where they're at in relation to big cities and things like that. The biggest categories where I see these types of things being an issue is trail cameras, boats and bicycles, e-bikes in addition to bicycles, screw in items, pruning shears, things like that, where you can make the argument that, yeah, if you don't know those things, you're putting yourself at risk of breaking the law. But I'd also argued the other side of it too, where if you're being overly conservative and you're just assuming that you can't use, say like a screw in bow hook or something like that, or you're just assuming that you can't use pruning shears and you're using paracord to try and tie back branches and things like that. But then it turns out that those types of things actually are legal. Then you're just, you know, holding yourself back further than you would actually need to. So definitely dive in to as much detail as you can go ahead and contact the local manager of whatever, you know, wildlife management area or whatever type of land that is. A lot of times they'll be able to give you a really detailed answer and, or point you to the game warden of that area. Cause they're ultimately going to have the final say at the end of the day. And some game wardens might be more of a letter of the law type of guy. Whereas you might get a guy who's more of a, um, you know, intent of the law type of guy. So it really helps to just get that level of detail. Number three, not understanding what seasons are open and what the opening days are of various seasons that are non-deer hunting related. I think as, you know, deer hunters primarily, it can be really easy to fall in the trap of just looking at the deer hunting season, trying to plan your overall strategy based on when it opens, when the rut is, when the firearm season is, if they have any special, you know, youth hunts or, or doe only hunts or things like that, we might have to wear blaze orange. But there's a lot of other species that are ongoing, some of which open up earlier than deer season, right? Locally here, bear hunting opens up prior to deer hunting. Uh, and also in like Wisconsin, for example, the people who use dogs to run down bears, they can train in that, you know, summertime period. And there's rules around that too. So even if you have no interest in bear hunting, it can still be helpful to kind of understand when some of those early openers are, when some of those like training, you know, periods take place. 
as it could impact your opening day strategy and opening weekend strategy. Same thing with small game. A lot of times small game is concurrent, it seems like, with deer hunting seasons, but probably not in all states and all areas. Pheasant hunting and or, you know, grouse hunting seasons. You might be on to something really good, and then you go in the next weekend to make your final move in for the kill, and then you find out that there's been, you know, pheasant guys have been walking through with dogs, completely blew out that CRP area that you were, you know, had that buck bedding in or whatever the case may be. In marsh areas, duck hunting has a huge impact because you might get back into some of these nice little, you know, secluded um, hardwood islands and things like that around some of these sloughs. But some of those duck hunters are pretty hardcore and they'll get back into those same areas too a lot of times. And again, knowing that that opening day is, you know, October whenever, September whenever, lets you have a time frame that says, okay, we better get this, you know, all said and done and hunt this area a certain way up until this day and try and get it all done before then. And then once that other pressure does come in, then maybe you can look at using that to your advantage. But if you're just looking at it from a deer hunting perspective and looking at your seasons and your seasons alone, then you're definitely missing out a lot and could be putting yourself at risk of getting your hunt screwed up. Number four on this list would be hunting nighttime sign. And this is one of those ones that it's hard to describe in words what is going to be nighttime sign and what's going to be, you know, daylight sign. And sometimes even after years of experience, you're still not right. There's areas where I just walk by and assume that it's nighttime sign and then either decide to hunt it because I got a, you know, a short time frame, can't get back to where I want to go, or I hang a trail camera over it, expecting to see nighttime deer movement or whatever, and see what's using that area. And then come to find out that the deer are actually daylighting in an area that I never would have expected. That can certainly happen. But I think probably the more common scenario is for people to go in, especially if they're newer to hunting public land and they find a whole bunch of deer sign and it's all nighttime sign. They're finding, you know, beds that are in, you know, areas close to crop fields or around other food areas like oak trees, or they're finding, you know, scrape lines or rub lines, fresh tracks, just a whole bunch of good general deer sign but not realizing that they're far enough away from wherever those deer feel secure that they're not actually going to be hunting in those types of areas. Around here, you can typically look at it from just kind of an overall security cover standpoint and say, if this area has a lot of, you know, buckthorn or high stem count area and you're seeing that sign and it's pretty close to where you might anticipate that final bedding being, then that's giving you a pretty good indication that it could be daytime sign, especially if you got the weather on your side. And if you've gone ahead and scouted in the postseason, then you can figure out exactly where those most likely bedding locations are. And that helps a ton. But without knowing that level of detail, if you're just finding a bunch of good sign and it's in kind of just an open oak flat, then that might very well be, you know, you might be hunting sign that's only laid down at night. So definitely would advise as much as possible, always trying to look at the big picture. When you find sign, try and say, when are the deer going to be using this? Is there potentially any other hunter pressure here? Or is this a pretty secluded area? And then more so than that, how secluded does the overall area feel? Can you see, you know, 20 yards in either direction? Can you see 200 yards in either direction? Where's the bedding at? And if you start asking yourself those kind of questions and thinking critically, even to the point of, you know, what wind direction might a deer be using this on, those types of questions are really going to help you uh, go ahead and figure out if it's an area that's worth setting up on, or if it's just an indicator to you that there's deer using the area, but you actually need to go a little bit further in 
in order to get that daylight movement. Number five on the list would be not moving with the seasons and just trying to stay locked into one particular area. It seems like in the states around me, you'll oftentimes see people that just have say like a ladder stand or something that's just ratcheted onto the tree, or they might have screwing steps with a, a given tree. And in some cases they'll have a whole bunch of those set out and they'll, you know, hunt them accordingly based on the time of year. But a lot of times also you might see where illegal, like a mineral block and a trail camera or something. And usually those types of spots are just guys that are, they're basically trying to bring the deer to whatever spot they want to be at. They're trying to bring the deer to them instead of trying to stay active and, and maintain on those, uh, on those deer throughout whatever, their normal patterns would be. There's certainly nothing wrong with that, but definitely, at least in my opinion, I think if you're able to move with the deer and do more scouting than you are hunting and be able to stay on whatever's freshest, that's going to be able to give you your best opportunity. And in certain cases, it almost kind of helps if you take, take it as like an approach of if you're hunting it out of state, it seems like whenever I go on my out of state trips, for whatever reason, I always seem to be able to get on deer sign a little bit easier, fresh deer sign than I do when I'm hunting at home. And when I think about why that is, I think a lot of times when I'm hunting around home, I'm hunting in areas that I've scouted pretty extensively. I've scouted at various times of the year. I know that there's deer sign in certain areas, but I might not know exactly when it's made until I hunt it. So I end up going back into those areas and maybe I'm a few days early or, you know, maybe I'm hunting off of memory or something like that. And when I'm out of state, I pretty much just have no choice but to walk until I find fresh sign. And then you set up on it and then you see the deer. The other time you can fall into this trap, I think, is if you're hunting an area and you do see deer and then you keep going back to it because it's like, man, I saw these deer here before. Maybe I just got to set up on it a little bit differently, come at it to, from a little different angle and you keep hunting it. And then meanwhile, the deer's patterns are changing. Maybe they're on a certain browse food source. And then you hunt it one weekend, you come back the next weekend and now they're on red oak acorns or something that's got them shifted a little bit further away from where you were at before. And then you end up hunting in that same area, even though the sign might not still be, you know, super hot. And then you end up not seeing anything. Whereas in reality, if you were to just continue to move until you relocate, whatever that fresh sign is, that's going to give you your best opportunity. And that's one where too, if you look back to number one on the list, and again, these are in no particular order. It's just, you know, happens to be whatever order I'm going uh, through the list in. But number one was talking about spreading yourself too thin, different sized tracks and things like that. And number one, if you're hunting a, a piece of property that's too small, you might not have the wiggle room to work with to follow those deer around. Furthermore, if through that in-season scouting, you're spooking deer. Again, you might not have enough land if you're hunting a really small tract to be able to really allow for that level of, of scouting potentially. Uh, so you got to, in those types of scenarios, be a little bit more cautious, but if you're hunting an area that's pretty big and you have a lot of areas that are very similar in type, meaning you got certain food sources in one area and you know, you got them in a different area, or maybe you just got thousands of acres where there's a lot of similar type things in little pockets. You know, that if you blow out one area, but you figured out that it was fresh. Okay. Well, I'll go to the very next spot that looks like it has all of these same features. And that's where you're going the next day, essentially. And if you're on hot sign one weekend, and then you go take a week long trip out of state, you miss the following weekend, you come back all of a sudden now in location one is two weeks later. And if the latest Intel that you have is from two weeks ago, there's a very good chance that you might be hunting old sign. And so I fall into that mistake a lot in the past where 
I kind of leave off and there's a mental picture of what was going on and I come back and I want to pick up right where I left off. But very, very seldom does that actually work out. And usually I'm better off just spot checking whatever I was on last. And if it doesn't look like it's still just torn up, then it's okay. Back to the drawing board and, and refigure it back out again. And that seems to have been a lot more uh, fruitful this year. For example, you know, we're going through our notes, um, Samantha and I, and there's been one hunt so far this year where we didn't see deer either from the tree or in uh, very close proximity, like bumped a deer or something like that. That was telling us that we were pretty much right on them. And that one hunt, it was one of those types of areas where it's like, man, we had scouted it. You know, the sign looked like it was, you know, could be there, but we couldn't quite tell exactly what time of year it was made. And we decided to go back there. It was one of those spots where it was remote enough that once you get in there, you might as well hunt it. We get back into it. There's just not that much, you know, deer sign, but you can tell there's trails going through the grass and maybe some old rubs and things like that. And you're like, uh, maybe, you know, there could potentially be deer in the area or maybe we're on the very front end of it or something. And part of it too is just, you know, you might as well hunt it because you don't really have a, a plan B in some of those really remote spots. And so we ended up sitting and not seeing anything, but on pretty much every other trip, we've taken the mindset of really even treating our home states as if they were an out-of-state trip and just scouting and scouting and scouting until we find sign. Normally we'd be leaving the house at like three or four and saying, Hey, the wind direction is here, uh, going this direction. That means we got spots, you know, one, two, three, and four that could be good. And we'll check out spot number one. Spot one has got, you know, an A and a B type setup and you leave it like 3 PM. You get out there, you make a call and you set up. Whereas now we've been kind of leaving it like noon, sometimes even before noon, for an afternoon hunt and our absolute plan is to basically try and knock out like five different scouting spots in a particular region. Like there might be, you know, a 200 acre portion of a particular piece of public land that we know we've scouted in the past and, and there's a lot of good deer science, sometimes even smaller than that. Sometimes it might be like a hundred acres that has a lot of good potential spots, but we don't know exactly which one might be the best. It's like, okay, we'll leave at 1130 or noon, get out there scout all of them in such a way that you're not having your scent blow into the bedding. And then once you've gotten to the last one, then you make a call on which one was the best and go hunt it. I know Dan Infault has talked a lot about that type of strategy when he's done out of state type trips. And it, it's really effective. I think when you're in areas that you have very limited time to try and fill a tag, or you've got a lot of areas to burn, like some of these areas in Minnesota, you got 20,000, 30,000 acres of like marsh type habitat or a big river bottoms or something. And there's way more spots than any one or two people can hunt throughout a given year. So it's like, okay, you take off a portion and you scout five spots and you pick the best one and you hunt it. And then, you know, a lot of times it ends up panning out. You see deer, but maybe it's not the deer after or whatever the case may be. So then day two, instead of going back to whatever was there, you treat it like it was a new, you know, totally new set. And it's like, okay, well, we've scouted these spots in the past, you know, postseason scouting, there's five good ones here. We'll go out and, you know, spot check those at noon and then pick the best one to set up on. And that strategy allows you to really cycle through a large volume of, of land and, you know, hunt it, I think more effectively than I have in the past. It's been really the first year that we've taken that extreme of a strategy, but I mean, it's been paying off in terms of number of deer sightings for sure. I mean, the efficiency for us seeing deer this season is, I, I'd have to look back at the actual stats, but I know it's dramatically uh, greater than what we've had in the past. 
So I went on kind of a little bit of a side tangent there, but we're, you know, we're talking about not being active and moving with the seasons and how different things can help prevent you from getting in a mindset to be able to do that. But man, it's like September, you got a certain type of food that's most active. And then that shifts from, you know, browse at some point, usually to acorns. Sometimes the season starts out with acorns. You got to be able to stay on the food. You got, you know, pre-rut and rut. Definitely. It seems like you got those bucks that maybe weren't there early season, but they show up in certain areas. And you can tell that based on the historical sign. And you can tell it once you actually start hunting it and you start seeing all these new, uh, these scrapes pop up and you can see it with trail camera photos of deer that just show up, you know, preparing for the rut. And then you got the gun seasons that roll in and that, you know, throws a whole different loop, you know, through things, but just based on the pressure and, and deer might totally shift their bedding locations based on them getting kicked out of all the spots that they were at previously. And then late season, again, you got totally different food sources that you likely had earlier in the seasons. So being active and just being on the ball in terms of, uh, the up-to-date scouting and trying to do, trying not to sit a spot unless you have active Intel that says you should be sitting there, I think is, is definitely going to help there. Number six, this one's kind of a spinoff of the last number five, you know, whereas before it was like not moving with the seasons and staying on the, the hottest sign is kind of that number five. Number six is hunting based on memories of, you know, deer that you've killed or hunting on memories of spots. I know that I've fallen uh, victim to this one in the past before where uh, there's like a, a particular spot in a, a swamp that we hunted growing up and sat there opening day one year had a really hot white oak tree had a doe come in shot the doe went back and hunted it again i think on november 7th shot shot a buck that was at the time you know my biggest public land buck probably like a 17 inch you know eight pointer and at the time for me you know that was a huge accomplishment i was you know super you know pumped happy i knew that spot inside and out based on those couple times hunting there and I was like, man, this, this spot is great. I'll just keep coming back to this one. And I know that it's kind of something I could hang my hat on and, you know, continue to have success year in and year out. And that definitely wasn't the case. You know, the next year there wasn't as good of an acorn crop hunting their early season. It wasn't that great. Hunted there, you know, again, a couple of times during the rut, for whatever reason, the does just weren't betting in it quite as much, but I kept going back to it. You know, I probably hunted it that following year, five or six times. And it especially became a kind of an issue when I was going to it as a fallback because I didn't have enough most recent information for other spots to know where I should be hunting. And I might be, you know, might've been doing football practice or whatever at, at the time after during the week. And then comes to the weekend. It's like, okay, well, you know, I don't have any, any fresh sign, any fresh Intel. I don't know where to sit, except I know that one spot was good before. So I might as well go give it a sit again. And I think a lot of times, especially if you've had success in a given area that can be, that could be a huge trap. I think where people fall into. And so I, I mean, to a certain extent, I want to say have a clean slate, but it, having that historical info is also huge too. I think context is key in knowing when it's going to be good and when it's not going to be good and being able to verify that before you start over hunting it. I think part of it is hunting an area without the fresh shine, just based on the fact that you had historical success there. And I think the other problem that is related to this is you start over hunting a spot because of past success. And then because you were over hunting it, now it becomes a cold spot and the deer, you know, start avoiding it. So I think there's, there's kind of a two faceted downside to hunting off of that, uh, 
the memories of years past. Then we got number seven. Number seven is not being decisive about what type of deer you want to shoot. Can be a, a big deal potentially in in uh, out of state trips where you might go in with a certain expectation and you got like a week to fill your tag. Could also be an issue back at home where you're like, you know what, you know, there's a lot of deer this size in this area, uh, but there's always the chance that you know there's this one like giant deer that gets killed every year out of this area. So it's like you're not really quite sure what you're going to shoot. And then you get into these scenarios where a deer comes in and you're not quite sure you become indecisive and then you can end up screwing an opportunity up because you were indecisive and having a, a game plan, even if it moves, you know, a lot of times people will say, Hey, I'm holding off for a certain size deer. And then a smaller one comes in and like, he's in there. Perfect. Um, you know, late enough in the season, I might as well just shoot this one go home, get the venison, start, you know, doing some overdue chores and things like that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I think the important thing is to just kind of have those decisions in your head ahead of time, uh, if at all possible, so that you don't get into a scenario where you end up botching an opportunity because you're indecisive. Mistake number eight would be not paying attention to where other hunters are going or just not paying enough attention. Maybe you have a vague idea of where people hunt, but it might not be a, a total picture. I talked about before how if you're only hunting the weekends, and you got maybe some guy who's retired and he only hunts during the week and he doesn't hunt the weekends because there's too many other people out there. That type of hunter sign too is, you know, vitally important to the overall strategy and where some of those deer are going to start hanging out in. And some of that Intel might be hard to get. I've found personally that in areas where I'm able to hang trail cameras, if I have a couple that are really well hidden over access trails that I can start to get Intel that says like, Hey, there was a guy here Tuesday and Wednesday when I wasn't out here. And had I not had that camera out there, I wouldn't have known. Now, of course that can work with just like a regular, you know, style of trail camera and you're checking it periodically because it's in a high traffic area. But I've also seen this become really helpful this year, just running cell cameras in certain areas. I have a couple spots that they're more remote and I don't anticipate there being a lot of hunter sign, but for whatever reason, like two days ago, I had a couple of dogs. I don't know if they were running bears or if they were just like running loose and tried, you know, treeing a coon or something. I'm not a hundred percent sure. But what I do know is that you had these, these couple of dogs that were basically right in front of this trail camera, barking up a tree for what looked like on the pictures, probably about a half an hour. And I'm sure that probably has some type of an impact too. And maybe the deer go right back to whatever they were doing. But point being, if I didn't have that Intel, or if I was only checking those cameras, you know, once or twice a year, or just letting them soak the entire season, I might potentially go in and hunt an area like that and not have any inkling or, or idea that that had gone on. So that's definitely something that I think is a big help. It can be a big aid. It's probably a, a decent, I think, use case for cell cameras. Um, and even just talking to people at the parking lot, instead of being, being the guy who just, you know, first in first out, you know, beat the guy, other guys to the woods. And then you see another guy in the parking lot, just throw your stuff in and start driving away. You know, if you start up those little conversations, not only can you start to, you know, get vague ideas for where those other guys might be hunting, but they might also talk about, you know, so-and-so that is hunting during the week or, or, you know, next week you got six guys coming from out of state, little things like that, that again, you wouldn't really pick up on unless you, you actually talk to other people. So try and pick up as much Intel like that as you possibly can. Uh, I think it's, I think trying to be too secretive or 
just not paying enough attention to what other people are doing is a big mistake. Number nine on this mistakes list would be not looking into the overlook spots. I think by this day and age, a lot of people are starting to get pretty good at looking at aerial photos, looking at topo maps and finding these nice remote looking areas that maybe didn't have that much hunting pressure several years ago, but they're starting to get more and more. And I think as the digital age and, and all the, the YouTube stuff and, and podcasts and things like that, and all this extra information continues to, to get to people, I think more and more people are going to start to figure out how to do these things, at least have the blueprint. It's still hard work. So that alone will, you know, kind of detract a lot of people, I think. But some of these textbook type areas, I notice it a lot around me that the, a lot of the textbook type areas, even if they're very remote, have hunter sign on them. And the deer got to go somewhere, right? If you have these spots that should in theory be the best and other people are hunting them and, and people are over hunting them and, and there's a lot of, you know, boot scent and access and all this kind of stuff that is affecting what the deer would normally do. It's not like the deer just cease to exist. They're just going to adjust their patterns and it's up to you to figure out where they're going to adjust those patterns to. Maybe they're just off of those type of areas by a hundred yards. Maybe there's little pockets that are just not hunted by anybody and you wouldn't think to hunt them and they end up being good. Maybe it's a spot that's close to the road. Maybe it's just, you know, between two lakes or something. Finding those things can be, can be pretty critical for sure. And then the last item on this list would be not investigating alternative access. I mean, I think that's a, a big mistake potentially depending on what type of land you're hunting. And if you are trying to hunt overlook spots, and or if there's just limited access potential on a particular property. You know, I think there's some states where you're not allowed to hunt on like an access trailer you parked on the side of the road. You have to park at like a, you know, a specific hunter access area and that can make things more challenging. There's other places that might only have one access area for, you know, 5,000 acres. I think that's probably an extreme example. Usually they have uh, several from what I've noticed in, in that type of a size, but just to give you an idea, you know, if you have lots of access points and you've got a very elaborate, you know, trail system that goes all throughout and maybe people can use bikes or e-bikes or whatever, then that can also, you know, kind of throw a, a wrench into things and make it so that it's very easy for people to get to some of the remote spots. It's very easy for people to get to areas that you might want to check out. But those things also might steer people away from some of those potentially overlooked spots, right? So that kind of, you know, goes hand in hand with, with number nine on the list here of those overlooked spots. But, but certainly I think from the access perspective, number one, it's don't let the access steer you into areas that are over hundred. And number two, make sure that wherever you're trying to get to that, that common access is not going to give you up. Right. If you want to hunt in a certain area and it's like, man, I got to get back to this spot. The only parking area is right here. And if I go up on this logging road and come back around, then there's going to be a certain amount of time where my scent is blowing into the bedding area. I think those deer are using, well, that's, that's a problem, right? <laughs> you, you can't, you can't just blow your scent right into a bedding area right before you're planning on setting up right on it and expect to, to have good things. So it's like at that point, how else can you get back in there? Do you have to make a big loop to get around? Um, that's maybe, you know, through a bunch of deadfall or something, or maybe there's a Creek access that you can take, or maybe you can access via boat. Uh, it seems like a lot of the bigger river type areas, 
boat and or kayak access is starting to become more and more popular. So it's not always like the exact answer for every scenario, because if you're, if five out of six guys that are hunting a particular property are taking kayaks and boats and only one other guy is walking, well, then maybe you can find some of those overlooked areas that are actually easier to get to from the road. And those are things you got to be kind of open-minded to and aware of. Most of us have heard by now that it's pretty common for deer in certain areas to bed in such a way that they can observe the various access points. You know, hunting public talks about that. Dan talks about that. There's probably been a few other people I've heard mention the same thing where they'll find bedding areas either in really close proximity to parking lots or really close proximity to hiking trails or things like that. And if you're coming in on that main access, or if you're, you know, coming in in the morning and you're blasting your headlight out of the parking lot, then right away you're tipping deer off that there's somebody hunting there. And if you can figure out those types of things and then figure out a way to either, you know, park down the road or come in from the backside somehow, some way, or get permission from some of the surrounding private, then that can be a much better option, especially in areas where you have really limited access points. It definitely doesn't hurt in my opinion, to at least ask if you can access through private on some of the surrounding areas, because it's like, man, if you got a bad wind for that access area, it's like if you're either your choices are you don't hunt or you risk the access for a little bit. And then you try and make some big old loop, you know, halfway there to try and get, you know, somewhat around the wind problem. Or if you can just access through a neighboring property, then it might not be an issue at all. And potentially deer aren't even expecting deer or people to come from that location anyway. It can be a good backdoor type of an opportunity. Another advantage to doing that, knocking on the doors and asking around, is that you might learn that all of the surrounding landowners all hunt and they all access the private through their land already. And if that's the case, then that's a whole other piece of the pie in terms of the hunting pressure. And you can use that information to your advantage as well. There's been a, a lot of areas that I've found, and I get back into these just real nice remote spots. I'm two and a half miles from the parking lot. It just looks phenomenal on a map, right tucked into this little corner of the public land. And then I find like a ladder stand and you know, you're, you're 350 yards off the, off the property line. And it turns out, you know, it's not like some guy was carrying that big ladder stand in. It's just that some guy on the adjacent private, you know, walked in his ladder stand or took it on a four wheeler or whatever and set it up there. So just how, Talking to guys in the parking lot can give you a lot of that good intel in terms of the hunting pressure. Talking to those surrounding landowners can give you a lot of that information too. And you might end up finding some historical information about the land too. You know, oh, you know, 10 years ago it used to be good, but then this happened. Or, you know, we not, never used to have that many deer around here, but it seems like it's increasing. Uh, so-and-so, you know, seeing a couple big deer, you know, half mile down the road, whatever the case may be. There's just... Anytime you're talking to people in the, the general vicinity, you're able to get information that could potentially be good. might be worthless, but it doesn't hurt to ask. And even as I'm talking about this on the podcast, in my mind, I'm playing over a couple different spots where right now it's kind of a pain in the butt to access. And I haven't gone in and, and asked the landowners on the adjacent land for access permission uh, based partly on the fact that I think a lot of them hunt. And so that's been kind of a thing in my mind. It's like, oh, why bother asking? But you know, as I'm talking through this, it probably makes sense next time I'm out there, you know, go up and make a trip, strike up a conversation. Maybe they're, you know, rifle hunters only. Maybe they'll allow permission to access for bow hunting. Uh, or maybe I'll learn something that about the way that they hunt that I can use to my advantage when I'm out hunting on the public or, or something like that. 
So there you have it, my list of 10 potential public land mistakes that you can make that I've definitely made that I am you know, always doing my best to try and avoid. And if you guys have any other mistakes that you've learned along the way, uh, go ahead and you know, shoot them over in, in Messenger, Instagram, Facebook, anything like that. I'd love to, love to hear what you guys have to say. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.